Good morning. Welcome back to Parsha Perspectives for today. First of all, some housekeeping. This is our last Parsha Shear until after Tisha B'Av. We're taking a break for a few weeks, so please make a note. This is our last Parsha Shear until the week following Tisha B'Av. Hopefully we'll all be in Yerushalayim celebrating the rebuilt Beis HaMikdash. But we will resume the Tuesday morning following Tisha B'Av. If you'd like to listen to past Shiurim on the Parshas that we're not going to be streaming uh, live, you can find them on uh, YU Torah. You can find them on RabbiEphraimGoldberg.org. I want to thank, as always, our generous sponsors of the series for the year, Becky and Avi Katz, my dear friends, in memory of Becky's father, Lili Nishmos David Ben Menachem Manish, David David Grossman, who was a very special man. Thank them for their generosity for sponsoring the Parsha Perspective Shiri Jir, and hopefully, please God, it will continue. We have the privilege this week of reading and learning, of being transformed and inspired, of being enriched and empowered. By Parshas Chukas, page 838 in the Art Scroll Stone God speaks to Moshe and to Aaron, saying, First of all, it's interesting. Commentators ask, we're not going to get into this, why the word Lemor is repeated. First, God spoke to Moshe and Aaron, Lemor, saying, and then he told them, This is the Chok of the Torah that God commanded, Lemor, saying, Why the redundancy? We already had the word Lemor once. Why do we need the word Lemor a second time so soon? I'll let you offer your own answers. We're introduced here to the quintessential Chok, the ultimate Chok, and that is the Chok of Para Aduma, paradoxical. It is complicated or it was confusing even to the wisest of all men, Shlomo Amelach, who proclaimed, he said, Shlomo Amelach, he wanted to be rise, he rechokami many. I can't understand it. I can't digest it. I can't analyze it. I don't understand it. How does it make sense? It's paradoxical. The person is pure, purifies another, becomes impure. The impure pure person becomes pure. It makes no sense. If you're able to purify the other, you should remain pure yourself. Why and how in the process of purifying the other does one become impure? It's the ultimate chok. And it's not only a chok, zos chukas ha It should say zos chukas ha This is the law of the paraduma, it's the chok. It is the incomprehensible, inexplicable, un- ununderstandable, specific law of the paraduma. Why are we generalizing zos chukas, not just a chok in general, zos chukas ha-Torah, of the Torah at large, also a great question. But let's dive right into Rev Druk. We have many, many different Torah to share, where we've been learning Rev Druk this year, as Tamid, and he says the following, he quotes Rashi, zos chukas ha-Torah, the nations of the world and the nations have an amazing accomplice, the Satan himself. They are busy trying to challenge the Jewish people. What is the nature of this mitzvah? Bizarre, inexplicable. There's no explanation. It makes no sense. You take a red heifer that doesn't even have two non-red hairs, has to be a certain age, certain appearance. You burn it, you take the ashes, you sprinkle it. When you sprinkle it, the impure become pure, the pure becomes impure. It makes no sense. What's the reason? And therefore the Torah characterizes it, therefore the Torah qualifies it as says God, this is a gzera. This is an edict. God says, I am ordaining this on all of you. And don't try to understand it. Don't try to explain it. Don't try to digest it. I'm the king. When I say jump, you say, how high? I'm telling you, this is a mitzvah. This is a procedure. This is a ritual, what you need to do. You do not have permission 
to try to understand it. And as for Druk the following, Yesh Lahakshos, one can't help but be bothered. Mimasai Umasa Olam, Misanyanim, Bimitzvoseim Shah Yisrael. This Rashi, the nations of the world. Since when are the nations of the world trying to attack the Jewish people because of the Tameha Mitzvos? Are the nations of the world really making their way through Parshas Chukas? Are the nations of the world, are the anti Semites of the world, are those who challenge us in the world, is this their number one challenge? Is this their number 100 challenge? Are they really raising the Para Aduma and asking, doesn't make any sense? Since when do we uh, worry? Nations of the world really care, anti-Semites really care about our mitzvahs? There's no, there's no injured party. We're not talking about PETA, who are worried about the perfect red calf and what happens to it. The nations of the world all of a sudden care about this mitzvah. And moreover, the Satan, the evil inclination, the Yitzhahara, this Malachamavas, tries to seduce us to have poor judgment. The Yitzhahara, the Satan, is usually associated with negative behavior. The Satan tries to entice us, gives us an appetite to make wrong decisions, give in to that temptation, give in to that animal instinct, give in to that base desire. Here the Satan is not trying to distract us. Here the Satan, the imagery of the Satan is invoked, not in the context of trying to get us to do the wrong thing. Here the imagery of the Satan is invoked as challenging us as to what a mitzvah means. Since when is the Satan the business of Tamea mitzvahs? So the Rashi as a whole is bizarre. Rashi tells us the nations of the world want to know what is the reason for this mitzvah. And the Satan joins in the chorus and says, yeah, what is the reason for this bizarre mitzvah? So God says, I'll present it as a chok. That's my resp-. The nations of the world are asking, since when is the sat- Satan's in the business of getting us to give into the Yetzirah? Satan's in the business of challenging us about what a mitzvah means. What in the world is going on here? Says Rav Druk, V'nir levar kozeh, hinei kol yesod mitzvah, shalpara adumahu, kapara acheta egel. We know that the para aduma is the atonement. The para aduma is the repair for the mistake that we made with the Chet Egel. We cheated on God, unfaithfulness, infidelity. We worshipped an ego, we worshipped a calf. As the Medrash says, The Medrash, in fact, compares it. A child, a child who soils the courtyard of the king. Let the mother come and clean up for the child. Child makes a mess, the child soils. So the imagery of the para, the cow and the eagle, the calf. The calf made a mess. Our worship of the calf created a mess for us. And therefore the mother of the calf needs to come up and needs to come and clean up the mess of the calf. So the para aduma is the response, the antidote. Para aduma is the repair. It's cleaning up the mess of the calf. On the other hand, Shlomo Melech said, I referenced it in Kohel's Perek Zion, Amarti Echkem, I said, I'm going to be wise, I'm going to apply my intellect, I'm going to apply my genius, my IQ, but no matter how hard I tried, no matter how much I investigated, I just can't access the truth, the understanding, the deeper reason of what the Paraduma is all about. And the Gemara Yuma tells us, Darshu Zosa Paraduma, Sheikhok, Gemara Yuma tells us that Pasuk in Kohelis is talking, what does it mean when Shlomo Melech gave up, he threw up his hands and he said, I just don't get it. I just can't understand, no matter how hard I try. Gemar Numa tells us, Yadalad, he was talking about the law of para aduma. So I don't understand. Shlomo Amlech didn't realize. What do you mean? You know what the para aduma is here for? It's here to clean up the mess of the calf. 
Why didn't he know? The mitzvah of paraduma cleans up for the mistake, the poor judgment, indiscretion of the Chet why are the nations of the world involved? Why are our enemies and anti-Semites? Since when do they care about Paraduma? The answer is because they want to, they want to challenge, they want to prosecute the Jewish people. Do you know how you prosecute the Jewish people? They said, Jewish people, what's the reason for the Paraduma? They were trying to trigger us. They were trying to catch us. They were trying to, what do they call it? Gaslight us? They were trying to say, hey, how come you need this paraduma? What's the role of the paraduma? And they wanted us to answer, you know why we need the red heifer? The red heifer, we made a mistake. We had terrible judgment. We cheated on God. We practiced infidelity. We were poorly behaved. And therefore, we have to undergo this process of the red heifer. The nations of the world, there was a role, there was room for the anti-Semite. The Satan was trying to uh, prosecute and persecute us by getting us to admit, by getting us to confess and say, the reason we need the law of the red half of the Paraduma is because we made a mistake, because we cheated on God. That we'd say, they wanted to prosecute us in heaven. And now we understand why specifically out of all 613 commandments that they could have challenged and they could have prosecuted us with, why they come at us with specifically the mitzvah of the red heifer, the answer is because it's that mitzvah which reveals, it's that mitzvah which would have pressured us to admit, which would have made us confess the Chayta Ego, the mistake of the golden calf. And therefore they challenge us so that we would have to respond, we'd have to admit, we'd have to confess it out loud. And that's what it means that they pressured us, they pushed us, they tried to entice us to get us to say out loud. They wanted us to articulate our mistake of the Ego. God says, hey my children, hey Jewish people, I got your back. Zos chukas hatora, gzera milfanai. No, this is a gzera before me. Ein rishus lahar achareha. You cannot try to understand. You cannot try to explain it. So mikevan shakach anu yoda meata. Kiloze atam shatavo imitikanach toas bina. You need to know that really this mitzvah, while there's a cute play on words para and egel, while there's a cute association of the mother cow and the calf, don't try to understand the ways of God. God says, I'm omnipotent, I'm infinite, I'm perfect, I'm all-knowing. I've existed forever, I will be here forever. Don't try to understand my ways. Don't try to understand my directives. Know that I'm coming from an infinite, omnipotent place. And I'm asking you or telling you to do this. So God had our back and he totally disarmed our anti-Semitic threatening friends. He totally disarmed and took away their ability to try to indict, to try to prosecute us by saying, don't try to explore the reason. You don't have permission to try to understand it. So there's no contradiction for Shlomo Melech. On the one hand, Shlomo Melch understood the mother's cleaning up for the child. But is that the reason for the mitzvah? It happens to be when we observe it, the mother's cleaning up for the child. But that's not the reason. And we're not entitled to try to explore the reason. It's too far. Why do I enjoy this Dvar Torah? Why is it important to me to share? What is the Parsha perspective for us for today? I think that this insight reminds us that when we go through challenges in life, and this year the Jewish people saw several challenging situations whether it was the 45 people who died in Meiron, 
whether it was the rockets that rained down on the heads of our brothers and sisters, whether it was the tragic losses due to corona, the worldwide pandemic, whether it was the bleacher collapse, Karl and Stalin, whatever the, the challenges that Jewish people have faced, are we in the business of trying to say definitively, conclusively, and this is why God does what he does. And this is the message for us. And this is what God wants us to take. We're not in that business. If Shlomo Amalek, the king, the wisest of all men, said, I tried to explore, I tried to understand, I tried to analyze, I'm not God, I'm not infinite, I'm not omnipotent, I don't have that view and that perspective, I don't look down on the world from that perch, and therefore I cannot say I understand. We're not asked, nor are we entitled. As Rashi said, we're not allowed to, we don't have permission we don't have a license. Now, do we have to act? You have to observe the para aduma. We have to grow. We have to improve. We have to take upon things for ourselves. We have to ask not why, but for what. Not lama, but lima. Of course we have to react. Of course it should inspire us to be better. Of course it should motivate us to try to improve. But to definitively or conclusively point, put a finger and say, this is why God did what he did. Shlomo Melch couldn't figure it out. We can't figure it out when it comes to the law of Paraduma, and we can't figure it out when it comes to some of the tragedies in our world. So it's not a contradiction. It's not a contradiction on the one hand to say, let the mother clean up for the child. On the other hand to say, but we don't understand the reasons for God's rules. I want to suggest to you my own interpretation that what is the connection of the association? How here is the mother cleaning up for the child? Is it just a cute play on words, para and egel, the mother cow and the calf? Or is there a deeper connection? We've studied many times, back to Parshas Kisisa, what was the Chayta Ego? Where did we go wrong? What mistake did we make? So according to Yudah Levi, according to the Kuzari, the mistake that we made was we didn't cheat on God. We did not have an affair on the side on God. The Ego was not an alternative to God. We desperately were trying to connect with God. We made the mistake of needing a physical means, a physical mechanism. We were looking for something tangible, palpable, until then, we had Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe was the expression of God in this world. And Moshe communicated the word and the will of God in this world. And Moshe was our conduit and our connection to God. But when Moshe was on top of the mountain, and when the Jewish people miscalculated and we thought he wasn't coming back, they said, now what? We need something tangible. We need something to look at, to touch, to listen to. We need some manifestation to connect, something tangible and palpable, to feel God's presence. So they built an ego not as an alternative to God, not in a mac- as a way of cheating on God, but in an effort to connect to God. It was misguided. It was wrong. Says the Kuzari, that was the mistake. We are not allowed to be too inventive. We're not allowed to be too entrepreneurial. We're not allowed to be too creative or independently thinking when it comes to connecting with God. He gave us 613 mitzvos, And within those mitzvos, we have different traditions and we have different customs. There are 70 paths of Torah. But we have to be within the mitzvahs, within the 613 commandments. We are not entitled to design to creatively make up our own. We're not allowed. That was the mistake. No matter how noble the intent, no matter how pure the motive, no matter how strong the desire to be closer to God, we cannot be too inventive or creative that I want to grow close to God in this way. None of you made the same mistake. They brought ketores, they brought incense on the inauguration day of the tabernacle that they weren't commanded and therefore they left this world. They were struck down tragically because there is, there is room for creativity within religious practice, but there's not room for too much creativity. There are boundaries to the religious creativities that we can practice. So perhaps here, essentially, what is the ultimate antidote to a mistake? Because we need to understand 
What is the ultimate antidote to a mistake? Because we demanded that we comprehend, we understand, and had to meet our needs, the Chet Egel, the ultimate antidote is Chukas HaTorah, the quintessential Chok, Para Aduma. When we are willing to observe something that we don't understand, when we're willing to observe something that we can't comprehend, that is a testament to our commitment to all of mitzvahs, even the ones we do understand. That's what I think it's the Rechayim, that's what others explain. That's why it's called Zos Chukas HaTorah, not Zos Chukas Para Aduma, it's Chukas HaTorah. Because, you know, when you're willing to do the things you don't understand, it shows that even the things you do understand, you're not doing it because you understand it, but all that we do, we're doing in our devotion, our commitment, in our dedication to God. Last week on Behind the Bima, we had Bidi Deutsch, who is the uh, accomplished marathon winner in several marathons, lives in Israel, is competing for the, was competing and will compete again for the Olympics. An amazing woman. She runs in a skirt and with her, uh, with, uh, her arms covered and her head covered and really difficult and challenging, but is committed. So she was talking on the podcast. It's worth listening to Behind the Bima last week, behindthebima.com. You can find it. She was talking about she's disadvantaged running in that way. She still wins and she still competes. She's disadvantaged. Why does she do it? Where does the commitment to modesty come from? And she likened it to, you know, she would, she would um, throw her clothing over the door to dry after a run. And it bothered her husband. He asked her not to. So at first she said to him, what's the problem? It doesn't bother me. And then she stopped herself and realized, it doesn't bother me, but that's not the point. It bothers you and I care about you. So whether I understand it and whether it bothers me or not, if I'm committed to a relationship, it's not about what I understand or what bothers me. It's about what you've communicated is your need, is your want, is something that bothers you. And when she realized that in that conversation, that momentary exchange with her husband, she said she realized that's true about Torah and mitzvahs. So even on the days that she doesn't feel the beauty of modesty. Even on the days that she desperately wishes she weren't wearing that clothing that is putting her at a disadvantage, that's making it harder to run. But it's about God. We're in a relationship. And when you're in a relationship, it's not all about what I understand. It's not all about what are my needs. That's why it's called Zoschukas Hatora. Because our attitude to the moments when we don't understand, our attitude to the moments when that doesn't bother me. So if it doesn't bother me, so then do I keep doing it? Or even if it doesn't bother me, but if it bothers you, then it bothers me. Chok, when God says, you're not going to get this one, it's a test. Let's see. Are you all in even when it doesn't bother you? Are you all in even when you don't understand? And perhaps that is the greatest atonement. That is the power of the mother atoning for the calf. Because the greatest antidote, the greatest response, the greatest repair to the mistake that we made with the eagle, which was a mistake of a craving, of a need to know, to understand, to comprehend, for it to meet our needs, the greatest antidote is to do a chok is to observe something when it is beyond our comprehension. All that is number one. Number two, even though there were like three or four things in number one. But nevertheless, number two. Zos Chukas Rashi tells us, Shasatan Now the Gemara in Kedushin tells us the following. The Gemara in Kedushin Dav Lamed Aleph. The Gemara in Kedushin Dav Lamed Aleph says, Amar Vyud Amar Shmuel, Shalos Rabbi Yezer, Arheichan Kibur Aveim. How far does the commandment, the mitzvah, we have an obligation or responsibility of kibbutz avveim. We have to honor our mother and our father. They gave us life. And the Gemara says, when you honor your mother and father, you've honored me, says God. When you dishonor, or known today as dis your mother or father, you have dishonored and you have dissed me, says God. So how far does that mitzvah go? How far? Do we have to spend our money or their money? Do we have to inconvenience ourselves? How far must we sacrifice? How selfless must we be for so he answered Rabbi Lezer, he said, If you want to know how far it goes, 
check out this Gentile, check out this non-Jew, check out this idolater in Ashkelon, Dama ben his name is Dama ben the rabbis came to him because he had access to special gems, special jewels for the breastplate of the coin god or for the ephod, and they were willing to pay very, very hefty. And the, the, key, the key to be able to get those gems was under his head's father, the, father of, the head of his father. His father was napping, so he could wake his father, disturb his father, get the key and be able to turn a huge profit, or not. Lushnacheres, another story, that he merited because of his extraordinary um, honoring of his father, he merited that he had a paraduma. Paraduma is a red heifer that is purely red. So the rabbis came to him. I know this is so rare, so unusual, that if I ask you for all the money in the world, you'd be willing to pay it in order to buy this paraduma. All I want is the money I lost out when I let my father sleep and I didn't wake him up in order to get the key, in order to sell the gems. If a Gentile of a non-Jew, it's not one of the seven Noahide laws. You're not obligated, according to the Noahide laws, in honoring parents. You can't dishonor, can't be rude to anybody, but there's no specific obligation to honor parents. It's not among the seven Noahide laws. So here's a Gentile who honors his father in extraordinary fashion, even when he's not commanded, all the more so we who are bound by Torah, all the more so we who are commanded, should excel in this mitzvah. So, L'chori Yishlaim Maisazu asks Rav Druk the following, Why was that the merit? He didn't wake his father, he didn't disturb his father to get the key, to access the gems, to turn a profit. And what was the reward God said? Red heifer. You will grow a red heifer, and you'll turn a big profit. You'll make up what you lost with the gems by selling that red heifer. Why didn't God make him win the lottery? Why didn't God make him do make an incredible stock investment? Why didn't God make him short the market when everyone else went long? Why didn't God let him make up that money in some other way? Why was specifically the reward for not waking his father para aduma? Says of Jerk the following: Because in the moment that Dama Benesina displayed this extraordinary honor for his father, again. The prosecutor, the prosecutor began to speak against the Jewish people. And he said, here, this non-Jew, this idolater, is excelling and honoring his father. He's willing to forego, he's willing to forfeit all this money, all in order to honor his father. What about the Jewish people? Where's their honor? Are they willing to go that far? Are they willing to forfeit? In order to remove this prosecuting notion against the Jewish people, because Dhamma Benesina excelled, therefore the reward was specifically a paraduma. Why? Because now the Jewish people would come and it would be they would be asked to spend an exorbitant amount of money. And that would eliminate, that would remove the katrug. That would eliminate the prosecuting angel. Why? Because Dhamma Benesina was willing to forfeit money to honor his father. 
Honoring your father is a logical mitzvah. If I were to ask you, do you need the Torah to tell you to honor your father and mother? No, it's logical, it's rational. Uh, you look at this generation, it doesn't always look so logical and rational, but in theory, it's logical and it's rational. The people who gave us life, we have to show them respect. People who gave us the very life that we have, we have to express our gratitude. It's a mitzvah sikhli, it's a rational, logical mitzvah. We don't need God to command it in order to have discovered it. So Dhamma ben Asina, he earned his he earned his reward for doing something which is logical. But when we came and we were willing to pay whatever it took in order to get the paraduma, we were showing that we were willing to spend money, we were willing to forfeit money, we were willing to lose money for something we don't understand. And that removed the katrig. That removed the prosecuting angel against us. And therefore, maybe that is the connection between the two. Very good. Continuing the Torah. Here the story of the Paraduma. We discussed, I believe, last year some of the other ingredients to the Paraduma that go into it. The eight eras, Ezov, Shnitolas. We know that it's burned. And then uh, we take a wood, cedar, hyssop, and crimson thread, and you throw it into the mixture, into this recipe sprinkled onto the impure person. We discussed the symbolism and significance of those other ingredients, I believe, last year. Moving along to Perak Yudtes, Pasuk Yudzayim. Turn the page, 840, in the article, Stone Chumash. We uh, take from the contaminated person some of the ashes of the burning of the animal, and we put upon it spring water in a vessel. Says the Holy Vision, it's a Rebbe, Vilaku Litame me afar, afar Romes la anava, the shiftless ruach. Why are we taking also from the dust? We're taking from the ashes and from the dust. What does ashes and dust reference? Humility. Humility. Modesty. Venafshi ke afar la koltihia. We daven, we pray three times a day, the end of our Amida. We say, God, let me be like modest and humble in the eyes of others. School of Tahara. So says the Imre Chaim, there's something very powerful we can learn from here. If the whole section of the Paradum is telling us, you want to live a pure life, how can we purify ourselves from the contaminations we've experienced? How can we purify ourselves from the impurity that we've had? The answer is, Lehisnaig Ba'anava, humility and modesty. School of Tahara, Lehisnaig Ba'anava. Modesty and humility. We don't have to be the loudest person in the room. We don't have to suck out all the air in the room. We don't have to have the spotlight in the room. We are about promoting the brand is Hashem, His Torah, meaning, inspiration, not us. The school of the Tahara, you want to live a pure life and you want to purify the impurities, the contaminants, Hisnai Ba'anava. Practice humility. That is the, that is the answer. Perachav Pasuk Aleph. Let's move right along the next parak. Page 842. The next story right after we're introduced to the Para Aduma and its application is, tragically, the death of Miriam. Miriam and Aaron both die in our Parsha. And it feels like it comes out of nowhere. It feels like we just left Mitzrayim. We know that we're only in Bamidbar. We all still have half a Bamidbar Dvarim to go. We're only in the beginning of Tamas. We're not going to complete reading the Torah until Simcha's Torah. What do you mean? What do you mean? We lost, I, when I realize almost every year when you read Parsha's Chukas, when I was preparing and I realized, oh my goodness, we lose Miriam, we lose Aaron. What, uh, Moshe's on his own. It feels like it comes out of nowhere. It's abrupt. It's so sad. It's so tragic. We lose the perspective of the context and the scope of those years in the desert and where we are within them. So the Torah tells us, Children of Israel, whole assembly, we arrived in the Midbar, first of the month, we settled in Kadesh. 
Vatamas Sham Miriam, Vatikaver Sham. And Miriam, Miriam Anavia, Miriam the prophetess, Miriam, Miriam who was responsible for saving Moshe, Miriam, who was a mother of the Jewish people, she died and she was buried there. And immediately we didn't have water. Why didn't we have water? So Rashi already tells us. What is the connection? What is the sequence between Miriam dies and immediately we don't have water? Says Rashi, First of all, what's the juxtaposition here between the death of Miriam and what came right before, namely the Para Aduma? The juxtaposition is that just like the Para Aduma and just like sacrifices can atone, so too the death of the righteous achieves atonement. She died with the kiss of death. The kiss of death means that for the righteous, <clears throat> for the unrighteous, we make the mistake of thinking that my body is who I am. Eh, soul, maybe I have one, maybe I don't have one. When the soul is extracted from the body and the soul looks down at the body, the soul says, oh, that, that was me? The soul's in great pain. The process of the transition from this world to the next, of the soul being ex- extracted from the body, can be very painful. The more one associates and identifies with the body. But the less one associates and identifies with the body, the more one knows I am a soul and I have a body. But the body is just a vehicle, it's just an instrument. The body is just a garment for my soul. But the real me is the soul. Then death is not painful, it's an ashika. Death is an ashika. The Rambam in, in his Guide to the Perplex writes that the most righteous, death is the kiss of death. Death is bliss. Rav Nachman of Breslov writes, in Likutei Moharani says that not that he longs for, God forbid, nobody longs for death. But he says, I long for a time when my soul can disrobe from the body. You get home from the end of a long day, finally take off that tie, you can finally take off what a person had to wear at work, change it to something more comfortable. Rav Nachman says, my soul can't wait to disrobe from the garment that is the body. So Miriam's death is described as an ashika. It's the kiss of death, it's bliss for the righteous that always knew they were a soul and they had a body. Death is not painful or uncomfortable, Death is bliss. Fine. Why was there no water? What's the connection? We spoke about the juxtaposition, the contrast to what came right before. But what about what comes right after? What does it mean there was no water? All 40 years they were in the desert. The Be'er was in the merit of Miriam. Miriam now died. There was no more water. Miriam dies. They lost the water. With Aaron too. If you fast forward, Perachav Pesachavtes, in the same Perach we lose both. It's mamash, getting emotional and get choked up. The same Perach, chapter 20 of Bamidbar, we lose both Miriam and Aaron. Two-thirds of, this, of these siblings who really founded our nation, we lose them. It's painful. So what happens? He dies. Aaron Yasef, Aaron's going to die there. Moshe takes off Aaron's clothing, he puts it on his children, there's the succession. And the whole nation sees that Aaron died, and they cry for 30 days. And Rashi here tells us what happened when Aaron died, the clouds were gone. The clouds of glory, the clouds of protection, they disappeared. We lost the, we lost the clouds. What happened? The clouds were, were gone. What's the connection? Why is Miriam associated with the well and Aaron with the clouds? Why did we have specifically those elements in their merit and why did they lose them? I think we hit on this last year a little bit as well. What is the connection between them? There's a beautiful, beautiful Rabbeinu Bachya 
Rabbi Usher Brander, in his book called uh, Teachings, quotes uh, several of these interpretations. And Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar says the following. Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar says the following. And by the way, this is the, this is the rock. When we're going to get to in our section, we're going to get to momentarily that, um, that Moshe was instructed to hit a rock so that water will come out. It wasn't any old rock. It was this Miriam's well, which was mobile. It moved with them, just like the rock moved with them. What was the connection? What is the connection over here? So, um, Rabbeinu Bachia says the following. He says that um, when Moshe was floating in the water, Miriam was watching. She was patiently watching. And it was Miriam's idea to save her brother. And Miriam patiently wanted to see what would happen to him. Miriam's great chesed and concern for Moshe took place at water. Water is the symbol of chesed, and therefore the well was in her merit because that is where that is where she did that chesed of saving the savior of the Jewish people. It all took place with her vision, with her patience, with her devotion, all at a body of water. Therefore, the traveling body of water that sustained us was in her merit. But he quotes another interpretation. And the other interpretation was the significance of a well. We've spoken about this in the past too. We have countless individuals of our matriarchs and patriarchs whose shidduch took place at the well. Maybe that's the answer to the shidduch crisis. Not resumes or profiles, not shidduch pictures. We need more wells. We need more wells so people can hang out around the wells. That's where the shidduchim happened. So what happened at the well? Why the well, by the way? Because the well was a social center. The well was a place of great chesed. It was a meeting place. It's where Yitzchak and Rivka and Yaakov and Rachel and Moshe met the shepherds at the well as well. So it was an obvious meeting place and it was a place where people went to water their flock. It was a place of chesed. It was a place of sensitivity. It was a place of caring. So perhaps the reason that Miriam, we, in the merit of the, of the well, was uh, associated with Miriam, Miriam was also a great shadchan. Whom did she set up? Miriam was a shadchan? Soyot Sinai? Who did Miriam set up? So the answer is Miriam set up a couple that had previously been married but needed to remarry. Namely, her mother and her father. Her father withdrew from her mother saying, how can we bring children into such a a hopeless world, such a despondent world? He looked out at the world suffering and servitude of Mitzrayim, 210 years of persecution and oppression, and he said, how could we bring children into this world? He withdrew, he left her mother. And what did Miriam do? She made the argument. She said, you know, Paro is only killing the men. You're killing everybody. How could, you, how could you not be committed to a continuity? She reintroduced her mother and father, her father and her mother. She was the great Shadchan and brought them together. So maybe, maybe the association of the well with Miriam is because of Miriam's capacity and Miriam's role in having served as the great Shadchan that yielded the birth of Moshe, that yielded our Savior. She was a Shadchan, a Shadchanis, and she received her reward was commensurate with her life the reward that the well was in her merit because the well is the symbol of bringing people together and she brought her mother and father together, she brought the Jewish people and Moshe together, she brought the Jewish people and Hashem together. What about Aaron and the cloud? What's the connection between Aaron and the cloud? So we know that Aaron was Oiv Shalom Verodev Shalom. Aaron's character trait, Aaron is known as the ultimate peacemaker. He pursued peace, he brought people closer to peace and and. There's no greater peace than Aaron ever made than the peace between Hashem and the Jewish people. He advocated for the Jewish people and he fought for the Jewish people and he davened for the Jewish people. And so the role of the, of the cloud was, um, was in uh, a symbol, as a symbol of peace. You know, Rabbi Kiva taught that when a husband and a wife, when they, when they get along, the Shekhinah dwells among them. Ish v'isha, the Yud and the Hay. 
But when they don't get along, Eish Ochalam, the Eish consumes them. You take out the Yud and the He that are God's name, all you have left from Ish and Ish is Aleph and Shin. Aleph and Shin is Eish, is fire, is fire. So the Mahara writes in his Netzach Yisrael, Perak Nun Dalad, the Mahara writes that the clouds of glory were because of Aaron. He was the connector between Hashem and his nation. When the Shekhinah was revealed in the lower worlds, it was by means of the clouds of glory. And Hashem appeared in the pillar of the cloud. Through Aaron came the connection between Hashem and the Jewish people. So the clouds of glory come to call Yisrael by means of the Shalom that Aaron forged, the relationships that he created. So both Miriam and Aaron operated, they lived, they represented, they modeled kindness and peace. And that was their agenda. That's what they devoted their lives to. That's what their legacy is. And those things, therefore, were in their were in their merit, namely the clouds and the and the well. Someone just uh, gave me my friend uh, Lenny Friedman gave me this beautiful sefer, new sefer of Rav Ruven Feinstein Shlita called Nahor Shalom. It's in English. Nahor Shalom, Rav Ruven Feinstein on Sefer Bamidbar. It's a thick sefer, beautiful, beautiful Divrei Torah. I'll just share this morning a couple with you. So on this, he comments the following when he talks about Aaron's death and Aaron's legacy. He quotes Rashi that not only did the men of Klaisra mourn for Aaron, the women cried as well. Why? Aaron was the Oiv Shalom, Rodev Shalom. And Avos Rabbi Nassim tells us he brought people together. He, mel- he, he healed friendships, business partnerships, as well as Shalom bias. Rashi there on Pirkei Avos tells us Aaron had an amazing methodology. Two people were in a fight. Aaron would go to one and say, you know, the other person really wants to make up with you. And they go to the other person and say, the other person really wants to make up with you. And by suggesting that the other was willing to initiate, he disarmed the other party and the tactic worked. The two would come together and they would be able to resolve their fight. So um, Aaron would approach the person who was upset and ask what was wrong. And that person would relate all the terrible things. And after patiently hearing him out, Aaron would say, many, maybe, any of the actions had been taken in response to something the person had done to him. So Aaron would get the man to realize at least some of what he had done to that person was done out of anger. When he was sure the person would be willing to resolve the machlokas, Aaron had a similar conversation with the other and he brought them together. Chazal, this is the point I wanted to tell you. Rav Ruben Feinstein Shlita quotes, Chazal Kala Rabasi, Kala Rabasi Per Gimel, teach, there were 80, 80, 80,000 children at the time of Aaron's death who were named for him. 80,000 children who were named for him. Now, Shalom bias is delicate and it can take time. You meet with a couple, you're trying to heal the wounds. Even if Aaron had started his career in Shalom bias when Kalei Yisrael left Mitzrayim, there were approximately 2,000 resolved cases per year or more than five happy couples per day. That's a staggering number. I don't care what mental health professional you are, how successful you are, but did you hear that? Rav Ruben Feinstein crunches the numbers. According to the Kala Rabasi, 80,000 children were named for Aaron ostensibly because those parents were grateful that Aaron had brought Shalom Bias into their family. And if you do the math, it comes out to five a day. The way Aaron was able to accomplish this, says Rav Ruben Feinstein, an all-too-necessary feat was by advising many people at once. How so? Aaron was able to lend perspective to the many husbands and wives through public discourses in a way that no one else did. Aaron had a unique focus on Shalom, and when he would discuss it, he would bring out to the people again and again in many different ways, that often the deficiencies they were detecting in their spouse were in some way a reflection of their own issues. By causing the people to undertake honest introspection, Aaron was able to make quarreling couples realize they had solved their problem without ever talking directly to them. Out of Akar Satova, maybe to memorialize the lessons he taught them, they named their sons in his Aaron. In his, in his uh, honor, they named their sons Aaron. Which, by the way, is interesting because it says by the time he died, there were 80,000 children named Aaron, which means they were naming for him in his lifetime, which is the Svaradi practice, 
which is a fascinating origin for that for that practice. Okay, moving right along. Perachav pasuk yud. Now we get to the story. What Parshas Chukas is unfortunately most well known for. God speaks to Moshe and he says, "Kaches hamatev hakelas aida atav aron achicha v'dibartem elasela leeneim v'nasan meimav." Take your staff. Gather the people, speak to the rock before them, and it will give forth its water. And you will extract water from the rock, not a rock, the rock, and it will then it will be able to uh, water the people and their and their animals. He got the first part right. He grabbed his staff like he was commanded. He got step two right. He gathered the people at the rock. And he said, Listen, you rebellious ones. Should we get water out of the rock for you? And already we begin to now see where things went wrong. Moshe's lashing out. Moshe's lost his patience. Moshe's now calling them names. Listen, you rebellious ones. Should we? We? Is Moshe bringing out the water from the rock or is it God? Moshe raises his arm, he hits the rock twice, the water comes out, but that's not what God told him to do. That wasn't the way it was supposed to go down. So God tells Moshe, Because you didn't believe in me, God says, you didn't believe in me. This is Moshe, Moshe's legacy. He made a mistake. Because of this mistake, God is ready to declare, God is ready to say, because you didn't believe in me, so definitively you didn't believe in me? Strong statement. You didn't believe in me, you didn't enable me to, make a, to, to, to be sanctified in the eyes of others. You failed at the opportunity, the invitation to make a Kiddush Hashem. Therefore, you're not coming into Israel. These are the waters of strife, the Meim Meriva, and he was sanctified through them. There are a thousand questions, and there are a thousand answers, and we've spoken a thousand times about this section. I have an original interpretation of what was going on here, which we're not going to get into. We don't have time right now. Why God specifically wanted Moshe to speak, why Moshe still couldn't speak, to throw back to the burning bush, where Moshe said, I'm not an orator, I don't speak well. God tested him, Moshe failed. Perhaps he couldn't go into Israel because Israel needed someone who spoke well. Why is speaking well a prerequisite to being a leader in Israel? We spoke about it in the past, all for another time. Where did Moshe go wrong? We don't know. This is a harsh, harsh punishment. And Moshe spends the rest of his life davening that it be reversed unsuccessfully. A harsh, harsh punishment. Moshe's life work is to lead the Jewish people into Israel, and he is denied that opportunity. Where did it go wrong? What did he do wrong? Many, many suggestions are are offered. Where did he go wrong and what went wrong over here? One suggestion is that the Rambams, he got angry. He got angry. He made the mistake of giving in to anger. Rashi says the mistake was that he was supposed to speak to the rock and he hit the rock. But the Rambam says that wasn't the mistake because water came out anyway. And if that was such an egregious error, God would not have had water come out. So the Rambam, is quoted by the Ramban, says that Moshe was not punished for hitting the rock. Why was he punished? Because he got angry. He screamed out, Shimunah Morim, listen, you rebellious ones. He lost his patience and he gave in to that character trait of anger. Wasn't he entitled to? These were an incorrigible people. These were an impossible people. Moshe's frustration was more than understandable. Wasn't he entitled to lose his cool, lose his patience a little bit? Moshe, the one who dedicated his entire life effort, who toiled and worked and sacrificed all for this people, all for God's mission, who gave his energy and his resources and arguably sacrificed and forfeited his own family 
and he can't go into Israel because for a moment he lost his cool? And the answer is, yes, that's the anger, that's the emotion of anger. Anger gets us to make decisions which are horrible. In a moment of anger, a person loses their judgment, loses their clarity, loses their conscience, loses everything. In a moment of anger, when we lash out, when we act out, we can absolutely sacrifice and we can sabotage everything. Everything. Stipler Gom Birchas Peretz, we've said this before, says the plague of frogs, the second plague, Tzfardeya. We know the frogs had this unusual feature, and that was the frogs didn't need to multiply. There was one frog visited on Egypt, but when you hit the frog, it became two. You hit two, they became four, four became eight, and so on. Every time you hit them, they multiplied. So the stipler Gon, Birchas Peretz, wonders, okay, so the first time they hit a frog, it became two. Maybe the first time, the second time, they hit two, it became four. You learned your lesson. So stop, stop hitting the frog. They brought the plague upon themselves. The answer is, that's anger. When you get ang- they hit a frog, it became two. They got angry. How dare you, frog? I didn't want one of you. I don't want two of you. They hit it again. It became four. They kept hitting it. You see, you see just how negative anger is, how toxic anger is. You see that anger causes us to lose our judgment, lose our cool. Anger causes us to make mistakes. Anger causes us to bring a plague onto our family, onto our community, onto ourselves. All in that moment, one loses their cool. All in that moment, one can give it all up. That's what the Gemara says. That when a person gets angry, it's like they've worshipped an idol. What is idolatry? Idolatry is worshipping something other than God. A person who lives with Amunah knows that everything's from Hashem, everything's for a plan, everything's for a reason. There's no reason to ever get angry. Everything's from God. No reason to get angry, no reason to get anxious, no reason to get envious. So if you got angry, it's Kilo Ovid Avodazara. Who are you worshiping? Whom are you worshiping? You're worshiping yourself. You're worshiping yourself. The Gemara in Erevin says, in fact, a person is known, Kiso, Kaso, and Koso. We're known in three ways. We're known when we drink a little bit. A person who has Lachayim becomes a little bit inebriated. What comes out? Divrei Torah, spirituality, love, God forbid, anger, violence, vile behavior. What comes out? And be Kiso, with your pocket. What comes out with your pocket? And kasa, what comes out when you're angry? Those are the three ways that we are known. The Maharsha says that these three things correspond with the three relationships in life. Between us and God. Between us and fellow men. And our relationship with ourself. And says the Maharsha, the man's relationship with the Ribbon Shalom is drink tells us about what we think about ourselves. Anger shows our relationship with Hashem. If we give in to anger, it's a momentary lapse of faith. If we had real faith, if we had a real recognition of God and His role in our life, we'd never get angry. I'm not angry because because you're not going after the light turns green. I'm not angry because you left that in the middle of the floor. I'm not angry because you left me sitting and you were late to our meeting. I'm not angry because the email you sent. I have to deal with things. They can be frustrated. They can be painful. But I don't get angry because I realize everything is from Hashem person who gets angry, that moment of anger. And that's the connection the Rambam is saying. That's how the Rambam knew this. What did God say? How could you tell Moshe you didn't believe in me? Moshe, God himself testified. There was never ever anyone like Moshe. How can you say to Moshe you didn't believe in me? The answer for the Rambam is, in a moment of anger, it's a lapse of faith. They don't go together. If you really have faith, you don't get angry. If you got angry, for that moment you lacked faith. That's what the Ramban Ramban Nachmanides, in a letter to his son, the Igeris Ramban, the beautiful letter, he implores him, never, ever get angry, because that's a midah ra'ah. Never give in to anger. 
but rather learn to speak, learn to speak uh, patiently, learn to speak calmly to everyone you interact with, never get into anger. So one of the lessons, at least according to the Rambam, again, there are countless explanations for what Moshe did wrong, what went wrong, what deserved what seems a totally disproportionate reaction of God to say you can't go into Israel. Where did Moshe Rabbeinu go wrong? According to the Rambam, a moment of anger. In a moment of anger, we can sabotage everything. In a moment of anger, we can bring a plague onto our lives, onto our families, onto our home, onto our community. In a moment of anger, we lose that faith because if we maintain the faith, we would never ever get angry. Says the Imre Emes, Shimu Nahamorim. Look at Rashi. Says Rashi, Shimu Nahamorim. Listen, you rebellious ones, that he, that he was angry at the people. Pasuk Yud Aleph. Shemunah Morim, bam, 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 bam. Says Rashi, says Rashi, Es Hamilah Morim, Shotim Morim Es Morehim. What does the word Morim mean? Shotim, fools who rebel against their teachers. One did the Imre Emes, Rav Avar Mordecha of Ger. One does the great Imre Emes, the Ger Rebbe. Why do I need two explanations of Hamorim? Hamorim means the rebellious ones. So why did Rashi need to say Shotim? Hamorim es morehim. They are fools who make bitter, who rebel against their teachers. So said the Imre Emes, Shnea perushim alalu perusha echad lehem. Really, the two interpretations of Rashi are really one. It's not Rashi suggesting two interpretations. They are really one. Why? Because the Mishnah says in Pirkei Avos, chapter 4, Ezehu chacham ha'lomed mikol adam. Who is a wise person? Someone who learns from everyone. A fool thinks they have all the answers. A fool thinks they know everything. Who is the wine person, wise person? The one who can learn from everyone. If you don't have an appetite to learn, if you don't have a curiosity, if you're not engaging everyone around you to take out what you can learn from them, you're not wise, you're a fool. So you see, how, so who's Garua Mikol? Who is the lowest of all, says the Imre Emes? Someone who has a teacher. And the teacher is able to inspire. Teacher is able to be mashpia. And not only do they not learn from everyone around them, but they reject even their teacher. They think they're smarter than their teacher. So that's what the Imre Emma says. Rashi is not telling us two separate interpretations. Rashi is telling us one interpretation. The two are one and the same. Shimu Nahamorim. And who are the Morim? Shotim. They're fools. And what makes them fools? Morim es Moreim. Because when you push away your teacher, when you shut your ears, when you shut down, when you dismiss what your teacher is inspiring and teaching you, you're a fool. What makes them shotim, what makes them fool? Hamorim es moreim. It's not two interpretations. It's really one and the one and the same. God says, Lo emantem bi, you failed to have emuna in me, lahak sheni. There was an opportunity here of Kiddush Hashem. We said, Lo emantem the failure of Amuna. How could you say Moshe Rabbeinu? Moshe went up on the top of Sinai twice. Moshe Rabbeinu didn't have Amuna. Moshe was the paradigm of Amuna. But in the moment of anger, anger and Amuna can't and don't go ex- together. Loa and Mantem, in the moment of anger, he didn't have Amuna. And what was wrong with that? Because he failed Lahakti Sheni. You didn't sanctify me. The Rambam in the Sefer HaMitzvos, where he counts all 613 mitzvos, the Rambam includes the Mikta of the Niktashti Besoch B'nei Yisrael. The Rambam says we have a mitzvah to sanctify God's name. We say it every day. In Kedusha, we answer, we pledge, we promise, I will sanctify your name in public. That's our obligation, to publicize emuna. Loha emantim, the failure of the Kiddush Hashem is you didn't display emuna. The greatest Kiddush Hashem says revolbe, you see from this Pasuk, 
The greatest Kiddush Hashem is to put our Amuna on display. The greatest Kiddush Hashem we can make is to show others our unwavering, unyielding, unequivocal faith in Hashem. Lo ha'mantim, you didn't have faith, and therefore la'haktisheni, you failed to make a Kiddush Hashem. That's the Kiddush Hashem. The Kiddush Hashem is by holding the door, Kiddush Hashem is saying please and thank you, Kiddush Hashem is using somebody's name. Of course that's all the Kiddush Hashem, but ultimately the greatest Kiddush Hashem is to talk about with Amuna. Please God, thank God to show others what it means to believe in God, to never get angry, envious, or anxious, to show the, the benefits of God. That's a Kiddush Hashem. We each have that responsibility to avoid a Chil Hashem. What's then a Chil Hashem? If that's the definition of Kiddush Hashem, then the inverse, the opposite, is the definition of a Chil Hashem. A Chil Hashem is a breach of Amuna. A Chil Hashem is that you got angry, you lost your cool, you showed you didn't believe in God. A Kiddush Hashem is you got envious, you got jealous, you showed you didn't believe that God gives you everything you need. That's a Chil Hashem. Chil Hashem is not only sticking your head out the window of the bus on this class trip. Chil Hashem is not only spitball in the classroom. Chil Hashem is not only when you land as a headline in the newspaper. The Chil Hashem is when you act in a way that shows that you don't really believe and that you don't really live with faith in Hashem. Rav Druk also deals with Lahak Tisheni. And Rav Druk says the following. Oh, we left one out. Okay, for next year. We left one of Rav Druk's out. Rav Druk says, Lakti Sheni. And uh, Rashi there says, If you would have spoken to the rock, I would have been sanctified before the eyes. This rock doesn't speak. This rock is an inanimate object. It does what God tells it. So too, we must do what God tells us. The Yalkut Shemoni, the Medrash Yalkut Shemoni in our Pasha, Reshmem Zayin says the following, Speak to the rock. He doesn't say hit the rock. So when a child is young, the teacher perhaps strikes them to teach them in the old days. But once he grows a little bit older, then the teacher uses words, no longer needs to use the stick, the teacher uses words. So God said to Moshe, when we were an immature people, so you hit the rock, you see that in Shemos, but Achshav now the you're much more mature. The nation's more mature. It's time to speak. Shina alav perik echad Teach the rock one piece of Torah. Say a piece of Torah near the rock, and the rock will give out water. So says Rav Druk, a beautiful, beautiful insight from here. Says Rav Druk, there are people who think, you know, those who are learning Torah, those who are dedicated and devoted to learning Torah, they're being supported by the businessmen. The businessmen are supporting, are holding up those who are learning Torah. And those who are learning Torah, they're takers. They are simply being held up, being provided for, being supported. But according to the Yalkut Shimoni, you see that Kosh Baruch is telling Moshe, you want to get rock out of the, you want to get water out of the rock? Teach the rock a lesson of Torah. You know what brings about the miracle? You know what brings about the water? You know what makes the water flow? You know what makes it rain? You want the income to come? Teach Torah, teaching a Torah. Shaya Moshe Rabbeinu, Hayasela Moti Ma'in Chol Amisrael. Vimkain Limar a Torah Atzmu Zeshem Mashpia Bracha, Velomer a Torah Uzeh Mashpia Bracha Batzlacha Al Machzik V'Tomech B'Torah V'Lo Behepach. The one who's learning Torah makes it rain for the one supporting him, and that's the Chavetz Chaim understood. Chavetz Chaim says the pasuk in Mishlei that we sing, we put the Torah away. Eitz Chaim Hila Machazikim Ba V'Somcha Meushar. The Torah is an Eitz Chaim. The Torah is a living tree. For those who grab onto it and those who support it are 
are um, are blessed, are fortunate, are made wealthy. So why do we say v'la machazikim ba? We should say v'la machazikim osa. Those who hold on to it. What do you mean hold on in it? Said the Chavetz Chaim. There are two types of people who strengthen Torah. There are those who really think, if I don't write that check, if I don't give to that dinner, if I don't support the Torah learning, Torah teaching, in the shul, in the yeshiva, in the base medrash, in the kol, if I don't support Torah learning, it won't exist. And there are others who say, I write that check because Torah is supporting me. If they're not learning Torah, I'm not going to do well in business. Tomcheha. The Torah is going to exist either way. The Torah will be here. The Torah is what sustains the world. I'm not lifting Torah. Torah is lifting me. Just like those who carried the Aaron, they didn't carry the Aaron. The Aaron carried them. And that's the attitude that we have to have. Not Osa, that we are strengthened Ba. That when we learn Torah, live Torah, support Torah, Torah is what lives, what supports all of us. And that's what it says. If Moshe would have spoken to the rock and taught it one lesson of Torah, then the Jewish people would have seen that you know what makes the water flow? Torah. They think the water is keeping them alive and the Torah is just accessing the water. It's the opposite. The Torah is keeping them alive. And the water responds to the learning of Torah. There was an enormous Kiddush Hashem opportunity here. And the Kiddush Hashem would have been, says Rav Druk, the role, the centrality, the power, the support of Torah. And because Moshe Rabbeinu did not speak any hit, he did not take advantage. Right? What, what was he supposed to say? The Torah doesn't even tell us this. Right? What's he getting at, Rav Druk? What, what was he supposed to say? He's supposed to speak to the rock, but he didn't speak to the rock. Had he spoken to the rock, what was he supposed to say? So that's what the Alkut is telling us. He was supposed to teach in Torah. And you see the power of Torah. The Jewish people would have seen and would have learned about the power of Torah. And that was an enormously lost opportunity. All right, there was much more we didn't get to. The plague that struck the Jewish people. How they looked up at the snake, they were healed. Why the snake? Does the snake heal? The Mishnah Rosh Hashanah. There's a lot more we didn't get to. Mir Hashem, we will chuk us next year. I want to wish everyone a healthy and a happy summer. A good summer. A summer of learning, of growth. And uh, please, God, I look forward to resuming our learning together the Tuesday following Tisha B'Av. Until then, stay happy, stay healthy, and stay holy. We are on tomorrow morning. 15 minutes, Mesil Sashorim, 8.15, Living with Amun at 8.45. And tomorrow night, we go to Behind the Bima before our break, the last Behind the Bima of the season. Father-Son for the upcoming Father's Day, Rabbi Manus Friedman and Benny Friedman. Tomorrow night, 9 p.m. Have a fantastic day.